This morning we have a guest preacher with us. Uh, his name is Ryan Dugan. Ryan is a dear friend. We've been friends for almost 10 years now since doing youth ministry um, together. Uh, he was at, he's at Christ the King um, and me doing youth ministry here. Uh, but Ryan is the young adults uh, director at Christ the King. Um, he is a dear friend and he's been with us before. And so we're just grateful to have him come share the truth of God's word and the hope of the gospel today with us. So welcome Ryan with us. Good morning, everyone. I've grown my hair out since we've seen each other last. <clears throat> we've known each other for almost 10 years. That's wild. Wow, that's insane. Just makes me feel old. I love Kyle, though. That's a good thing. I've known him for 10 years. Good morning. Welcome to Epiphany Sunday. It's really exciting. Some of you may not know what Epiphany means. That's totally fine. Uh, I didn't know for a long time. If you look actually in the bulletin, there's a lot of really cool readings to check out in the beginning. Epiphany Sunday is basically about the fact of a celebration that Magi were, that met Jesus. Magi were the three wise men, the, king, the, the kings, the, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh guys that showed up at the birth of Christ. But more than that, Epiphany is about the fact that Jesus presents himself to the Gentiles, those that were outsiders, outcasts, that didn't belong, and now they do. This includes us. You see, because the good news of God's kingdom is that this gospel of Christ, his kingdom has come, it's a kingdom of renewal, a kingdom of redemption, and it's making all things new, and it's on its way. And this kingdom is made up of a lot of different types of people. What was once maybe thought to be for only a specific community is now for everyone. Anyone who might believe in the kingdom of God and its king, Jesus Christ, can be adopted into his family this is amazing news for us. The story that we're going to read together today is actually about this sort of thing, and that God's love for the outsider, God's love for the outcast, those that we might think don't belong, this is what we'll read about today. So if you look to Mark chapter 2, verse 13, we're going to read our text. Mark chapter 2, began 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting on the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not, called, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us with your love the testimony of your grace for us in this story. It's your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. The big question I want us to ask ourselves this morning as we go through this together is, who is this Jesus, a friend of sinners? Who is this Jesus? What's he like? When we start in verse 13, uh, this is the beginning of a section where it's the second time in Mark out of five 
that we see Jesus come in direct conflict with the religious leaders of the time. In verse three, or excuse me, verse thirteen, we know that he's gaining momentum. There's crowds following Jesus. He's in around Capernaum. It's a fishing village on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. He's performing miracles. In fact, just before this in Mark was the story of his healing of the paralytic man, where he's teaching in a room and someone cuts a hole in the ceiling and his friends drop him down and he heals them. If you want to gain a crowd, you know, busting through the roof of a house is probably the best way to do it, right? So people are following him. He's gaining momentum. And in verse 14, we see that as he's going along, this is what rabbis would do, the teachers of the time. They'd walk from place to place to teach. As he's doing so, he stops and he comes across a man named Levi. Levi is Matthew, the author of the first gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew. And you have to remember, this guy is a tax collector. And tax collectors were despised. They were not liked people. These were Hebrews who gave themselves over to Rome to tax their friends and their families. If that wasn't bad enough that you submit yourself to the occupying Rome, they would usually tax extra so they could skim a little something off the top for themselves to make themselves wealthy. It was a scandalous position and they were despised. Levi was an outsider, an outcast, an other type of person in his own community. But the kingdom of God is made up of a lot of different people. It's made up of a lot of former outsiders, a lot of people who were thought to be outcasts. So Jesus calls Levi. He says, follow me. And Levi follows. One quick thing to note this morning, uh, Jesus loves sinners. (laughs) And he calls sinners. See, to love someone is not what Tim Keller says. Jesus loves in a way that he sees you and loves you where you are. He loves you and meets you where you are, but he loves you so much that he does not leave you where you are. This is the love he shows Levi. He calls, he says, follow me, and Levi does. And then verse 15, we fast forward to dinner. Let's read this together. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there are many who followed him. I want us to take note of like, who's at this dinner party. It's Jesus, it's his disciples, it's a lot of people following him because he just you know, healed the paralytic guy. And then there's these tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors, like, tax collectors, like we said, were the, the worst of the worst. And there are sinners, those who did not obey the Mosaic law. These were outcasts in the society. They were known to be impure, untouchable, someone to not be around. They thought differently, they acted differently, They weren't living righteously. And then it says that Jesus was reclining at the table. He's hanging out with these people. He's having dinner with these people. Back then, much like now, to invite someone into your home or to be invited into into someone's home was an expression of friendship. Jesus is clearly communicating to everyone around him, I am a friend of Levi. I'm eating at his house. Because Jesus is a friend of sinners. So who is this Jesus, this friend of sinners? How does he love them? He loves them by showing up, by being present with the outsider, by being present with sinners. A lot of you spent uh, Christmas break hunkered down in your houses. Uh, Omicron had its way with us. Let's just just call it what it is. (laughs) Uh, Not unlike you, I was in the same boat. We stayed in our house. We had family coming in town. We just, you know, we, you know, kind of, caved up within the own little Dugan unit. The good part about that is we had a lot of time with family. The bad part about that is we had a lot of time with family. Um, 
Another positive is I got to catch up on some shows, namely Ted Lasso. I love Ted Lasso. If you haven't watched it, I recommend it. Heard a couple like, yeah, so that's good. I'm glad you like it too. I think what I love about Ted Lasso um, is the character himself, especially in the first season. We can talk about season two later if you want. But especially in the first season <clears throat> is that he is so warm and inviting. And he's so consistent. He's just like, he's always there with a smile. He's always there with some sort of, you know, encouraging hug or word. And this is not, this is not better seen anywhere else than with his relationship with Rebecca, the like calloused, mean boss, right? He's just, he's consistent. Always, every day, showing up with a smile. My favorite aspect of that is it has biscuits with the boss, where he brings her these warm, homemade biscuits with his warm, vulnerable heart, and eventually it warms and softens her. It's a friendship. See, because showing up, giving ourselves our presence, being present with people is a powerful, powerful thing. And the way that Jesus loves the outsider, the way he loves the outcast is that he shows up. He makes himself present to us. The glory and scandal of the incarnation is that Christ, God put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood next door to you. He moved into your house. All throughout Mark, we read of Jesus showing up for people. He sits with them. He eats with them. He listens to them. He heals them. He cries with them. He befriends them. And ultimately, he dies for them. He saves them. What does that mean for us? First, and maybe most importantly, we have to recognize that we are Levi and the sinners in this story. We are the outcasts. We are the outsiders. We are the unlovable. This is the point of epiphany. We're the ones who are far out, with no hope, with no home, who've been adopted into the family of God. There's a lot of different types of people in the kingdom of God, but the one thing they all have in common is they were all once sinners, destitute and desperate because of their sin. Dead to real truth and dead to real life. But God showed up. Made himself present. He made sure to get in our way and to become part of our lives by moving in. So this morning, first and foremost, take heart, church. Like Levi, God sees you. He's moved towards you. He knows everything you've ever done. And he loves you. Because he's a friend of sinners. Secondly, as his church, as his people, it means that we also, have to, we also need to show up for people. We're called to be present. What's one small thing this week that you can do to get in the way? To make a positive disruption for someone in your life that you consider to be the other? What I mean by that is that the person who thinks differently than you, that votes for a different person than you, that lives life in a different way that you live life? Could it be by taking a break at work at the same time as that coworker that you really normally try to take a different break then? Is it rolling down the window at the stoplight and asking the beggar what their name is? 
Could it be timing out when you take out your trash can so that you have to talk to your neighbor? Now, I'll confess that last one's a little weird because you have to, like, you know, creep and, you know, look out the window. But the point is, think of something small. One step, one movement towards another. Like biscuits with the boss, it doesn't have to be huge. Small and consistent. Because here's the thing. How will they call on him if they do not believe in him? And how will they believe in him if they have never heard of him? And how will they ever hear of him if no one ever tells them? And who will tell them if no one is ever sent? We're the sent ones. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. Word of this dinner party gets around quickly. And some more people show up. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It doesn't take long for the word to get around and people are coming and check out what's happening. And they ask this question, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he doing this? Now, this is not a question of curiosity. This is a question of judgment. Okay, so like kids, this is like when your parents are like, why isn't the garbage taken out yet? They actually aren't curious about the events that led up to the garbage can still being full. They want to know why you haven't taken the garbage out, right? This is not a question of curiosity. The job, they want to know, what is it with this guy? What's wrong with you? They're judging him. The job of the Pharisee and the scribes is to protect the people of God from breaking God's law. That's their primary role. The way they went about this is that in order to keep you from breaking rule number one, I'm going to make five rules to keep you from even getting close to, making, to breaking the first one. There's primary rules. I'm going to add secondary rules to protect you. One of these secondary rules was that Pharisees were not supposed to eat with, buy food from, the unclean, the sinners, and the tax collectors. The point here is that the religious of the time normally use their holiness their pursuit of righteousness to actually move away from people as opposed to moving towards people. They asked, how could he be associating with these types of people? Doesn't he know what they've done? They use their faith to create distance between the outcast and them, between the outsider and them. So who is this Jesus, this lover of sinners? What's he like? He shows up, but he also takes the hits for us. He's not afraid to suffer for the sake of sinners. There's a German novelist named Johann Wolfgang van Gogh, and if any of you know German, you can tell me later how I'm actually supposed to say that. He writes, tell me with whom you associate, and I will tell you who you are. Tell me with whom you associate, and I'll tell you who you are. This is the social ecosystem that all of us live by, or at least that our culture tells us we need to. Who are you friends with? Who do you run around with? And I'll tell you who you are. For, I spent, uh, I don't know, 10 years in middle school, in high school ministry. This is how middle school and high school works. At least it feels like that, doesn't it? Who do you sit with at lunch? That's who you are. What organizations are you a part of? That's who you are. Who, what parties and, and birth parties are you getting invited to? That's who you are. And kids, just a little insight, adults are basically high school students grown up. It's the same exact stuff, just more sophisticated. 
Instead of asking, like, whose party you got invited to, they're asking what country club you're a part of. What neighborhood do you live in? What car do you drive? What's on your business card? Or, let's be, let's be honest, parents, at its worst, we use our kids' status to make us feel good about our status. My son's on varsity. What club team is your kid a part of? Where did your kid get into school? It's easy and super tempting to fall into the line of, tell me who you associate yourself with, and that is who you are. But Jesus operates entirely differently, an entirely different way. He leaned into the mess of people's lives in order to know them. He hugged the untouchable leper. He paid attention to the forgotten prostitute. He sat and befriended the outcasts and despised tax collectors. He charged the uneducated fishermen with the task to bring forth the message of his arrival. Worldly status was never and has never, is not and has not ever been a prerequisite for entering God's adopted family. Jesus did not shy away from suffering the ridicule, slander, and shame of these Pharisees in order to be with sinners. He certainly didn't shy away from the ultimate cost of the cross to save sinners. He's also not shy about reminding us, his people, what it's like when we start doing the same things. In John 15, he says, if they hate you, remember they hated me first. Here's what happens. One of the things I love about Jesus is he's forthright with what's happening. <laughs> he's not selling you a bill of goods. What I mean by that, he's not telling you to go do something and then it's all of a sudden different than what he told you it was going to be. When you start to move towards those who are different, who you consider in your mind now to be the other person that you normally wouldn't associate with, there is going to be pushback. A counselor once told me, when you start to make changes in a system, the full weight of that system will push back against you. When you try to break cycles of sin and pain in your family, your family unit will push back against you. When you start to make friendships with those at work that people don't make friendships with, people will push back against you, either to your face or maybe behind your back. The good thing is that Jesus gives us, though, another status to be concerned about, another thing to be known by. He says, they will know you're my followers by the way that you love them. Our only way of leaning into the reality of persecution is to be motivated by the sure hope that God loves you. You're secure in Him. We love because we've been loved first. We move towards the outcast because we were once outcasts and God made us sons and daughters. Let's keep reading. <laughs> Last verse, verse 17. Oh, where we? <clears throat> On hearing this, what the Pharisees had to say, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus hears what these guys have to say and answers back with a classic Jesus zinger. Doctors are for the sick, not for the healthy. I have come for the unrighteous. I have come for the sinner, not the righteous. This here might be the most important thing for us this morning. One commentator says this, a self-righteous man is incapable of recognizing 
that need for help, but a sinner can. The new thing in Christianity is not the doctrine that God saves sinners. That causes no disruption for the Pharisees. The new thing in Christianity is not that God saves sinners. The new thing in Christianity is the assertion that God loves and saves them as sinners. The heart and ministry of Jesus, the great physician, is that he came for the sick, not for the healthy. So how does Jesus, who is this guy? How does he love sinners? He loves them by using his holiness to heal people as opposed to moving away from people. The image of a doctor is apt here. That's probably why Jesus used it. (laughs) He's pretty good at that stuff. Sinclair Ferguson elaborated about this imagery of a doctor in his book on Mark. He talks about in modern day medicine, you think about a surgeon. As she prepares for surgery, she takes great effort into making sure she's clean. You know, scrubbing down, putting on, I'm not a doctor, so I don't, I don't know everything you have to wear, but putting down everything that you need to do. Why so much attention to this? Why is there so much concern to be clean, to be set apart holy? It's not for her sake. It's actually for the sake of the sick. It's to prevent more hurt, more disease, more pain. In other words, the surgeon cleans herself in order not to hurt the deceased or injured. Her cleanliness is a necessary means in order to be helpful, not a means to separate. In this one sentence, Jesus is teaching the religious two lessons. First, your zeal for holiness was misdirected. If your concern, church, this is us, if your concern for righteousness, for obedience, if your purity moves you away from the broken and lost, we're doing it wrong. When you've found a cure for an illness, you don't run away and hide it. You move towards the people that need it the most. You were once infected and so are they. Secondly, Jesus exposes the false holiness. He says their so-called holiness expressed itself only in criticism of sinners, not in caring for them. This can remind us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. You can have all the gifts in the world, Speaking in tongues, prophecy, generosity, good behavior, great church attendance, right theological answers, a master's in apologetics. But if you do not have love, you have nothing. The same challenge is issued to us this morning. Those who consider yourselves Christians, we have to ask ourselves, does our faith and our practice of our faith actually lead us to people? Or does it lead us away from them? Does it lead us to being safe and protected? Or does it actually lead us out? The way we do this, if you're in the room and you're like, ah, I don't know, I don't even know how to do that. How do I get the courage to go do that? We have to be people of repentance, first and foremost. Christians are just thirsty people who found water in the desert and are telling other thirsty people where to find it. And remember, he came for sinners. So why do we keep pretending that we're not sinners? That we don't struggle? We need to repent. Namely, repent of the ways that the church has failed to love people. The Levi's of our time. Those that we consider outcasts and outsiders. Repent by listening 
to pushback or criticism. Repent to the communities in our city that only know Christians by our disgust of their lifestyle rather than our care for them. Do you know what destroys moral pride? A feeling of moral superiority? Repentance. We're just as desperate for the generous grace of God as anyone else in the woodlands. And here's the good news. God loves sinners. And he rescues sinners like you and me. And Jesus is a friend of sinners. You know, there's two places in the Bible, I'm going to end with this. There's two places in the Bible that Jesus is called a friend of sinners. One is Luke 7, and the other is Matthew 11. Remember whose house Jesus is at here in this story in Mark. He's at the house of Matthew. The author of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is declaring in Matthew 11, I know this Jesus, a friend of sinners. He saw me at my worst and called me out of the muck. And church, I want to remind us again this morning as we close. Jesus is not just a friend of sinners out there. He's a friend of the sinners in here. He knows you. He sees you. He loves you. He's with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, for your word. In Christ, thank you for your love. No better scene than on the cross where you gave up your life for us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us, that you give us boldness to love boldly as you've loved us. You give us wisdom to know and to seek out places where we can explore to extend your kingdom in our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our families. And I pray that you would remind us every day, Holy Spirit, not only of how desperate we are for you, but also how desperately you love us. And it's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Ryan.